0: Today will be my last sermon in this series on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And we went through a lot in these lessons. I think this is the fifth or the sixth part, maybe part five. I think we began at last new moon and we're ending at this new moon. We've looked at the different people that exist in churches today and how that everyone has a different background with different things that have happened to them in their life. And my job as a pastor and a servant to you, which is what the word minister means, a servant, is to be mindful of everyone's differences and lead and guide you gently in what the instruction manual, Holy Scripture, teaches. It is not always easy for me to do that, but I'm learning the more experience that I get. Then we looked at marriage how that Yeshua took the Pharisees back to the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis, to show them that male and female were originally one. That is, the female existed inside of the male when the male was created. And then the female was taken out of the male from his side and then brought back and presented to him where they would become one flesh again. Because something was missing from Adam when Eve was pulled out of him. So Yahweh brought her back to them. And what that shows is that Yahweh's design is unity, harmony, and togetherness. Although marriages do not always work out, Yahweh's perfect will is for you to get married to a person of the opposite sex that you love and care for deeply and then spend the rest of your life with them. And then I spent a sermon looking at divorce in the law of Moses. The law that Yeshua mentioned in both Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. When the Pharisees came questioning Him and trying to test Him. And we learned that the law in Deuteronomy 24 was put in place due to the hardness of the male heart. In order to protect women who were not being loved and treated properly by their husband. The law in Deuteronomy 24, 1-4, allowed the woman to be divorced for even light matters, not to okay the husband's actions, but to free the woman from a marriage where she wasn't being cherished. Women are not just to be married to. They deserve to be loved and, and to cheer, be cherished. And then the last time I taught, we went through some objections to divorce. These objections, number one, they ignore the law of Yahweh. And number two, they ignore the reality of sinful humans. Divorce is not promoted by Yahweh, but it is permitted by Yahweh. A person is not required to stay in a marriage where there is a habit of sexual infidelity, physical or verbal abuse, neglect of basic necessities, or the neglect of performing the role of a husband or a wife. All marriages have problems. And problems should be worked through. But sometimes people lose love and don't want to work out those problems. And Yahweh allows for divorce in order to free the innocent party. And He will forgive the guilty party if he or she repents. So today, what I'd like to do is show the harmony that exists between the law of Yahweh in Deuteronomy 24, specifically verses 1-2, through and the teaching of Yeshua in Matthew 5, 31 through 32. And I'd like to begin by looking again at Deuteronomy 24 and seeing the particular procedure that Yahweh outlined for a proper divorce in His law. Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 2. I'm reading this from the World English Bible. It says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, Then it shall be, if she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some unseemly thing in her, that he shall write her a certificate of divorce, put it in her hand, and send her out of his house. When she has departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. In the law of Yahweh, you won't find a requirement for a marriage certificate of any kind, much less a marriage certificate with the government. Now, I don't believe that it's a sin to have a state marriage license, but it's not required by Yahweh's law. Marriage began in the Garden of Eden when Yahweh presented the woman to the man. There was no preacher. There was no by the power of the state of Georgia invested in me. I always cringe when I hear that one. I never say that when I officiate over a wedding. I always say, by the power that Yahweh has given me as a minister of the law and the gospel, I present to you, not pronounced, but I present to you this man and wife. Because a preacher is not what makes a marriage. Not biblically. Nothing like that. There was just Adam. In Genesis, there was just Adam. There was Eve and there was Yahweh. It was a family ceremony. As we continue to read in Genesis, we find other marriages that take place. Genesis 24 is a great chapter where, in a nutshell, Abraham has this servant that he makes swear to him in the name of Yahweh that he will not go and find a wife for Abraham's son Isaac from the Canaanites, but rather from someone of their own family, someone of their own relatives actually. And so Abraham's servant goes to look for this wife for Abraham's son Isaac. And he finds this servant girl named Rebekah. And Rebekah is a member of the house of Nahor. Nahor is Abraham's brother. Um, She's actually Nahor's granddaughter. She's the daughter of Bethuel um, and the granddaughter of Nahor. Well, this servant, who is probably Eleazar, Abraham's chief servant... He obtains permission from Rebecca's parents. And he gives gifts to Rebekah from the house of Abraham. Abraham had sent his servant with these expensive gifts, not just for the girl that he would find if Yahweh prospered him on his journey, but Abraham also sent expensive gifts, not just gifts, but expensive gifts, the text says, for Rebecca's family. They left gifts there with the family. And Rebecca agrees to go back with the servant to become the wife of Isaac. So, she gets on a camel. Eleazar gets on a camel. And they go back to Abraham's property where Isaac dwells there in his tent. And Rebecca sees Isaac. She lighted off her camel, King James says. She took a veil and covered herself. And then she presented herself to Isaac, went into his tent, and the text says she became His wife. Now that might sound strange to our ears today. But Isaac's parents knew what was taking place. Rebecca's family, her parents knew what was taking place. They were asked permission of and they all knew each other because they were relatives. The house of Abraham and the house of Nahor, they were brothers. Isaac and Rebecca were actually second cousins in Scripture. And there is nothing in Scripture... Even in the later laws in Leviticus 18, which Leviticus 18 is the laws of against ancestral relationships, but there is nothing in Scripture, even in Leviticus, that prohibits cousins from marrying. Now that really sounds strange. But that's what the Bible teaches. Most of the information that I present here from the pulpit in a sermon, when it sounds strange, it's simply because usually preachers don't ever talk about it. But the information is always just about... There might be some times when I disagree with most scholars, but there's always good scholarly reason for what I present in Bible dictionaries, Bible encyclopedias. This is things that gets talked about not necessarily in a church setting, but in an encyclopedia of the Bible or a dictionary. So Isaac and Rebecca were second cousins. We don't need to shy away from that because Scripture teaches it and their marriage was, was blessed. We know that Isaac and Rebecca, their chosen son, was was Jacob, right? And Jacob is who the tribes of Israel came from. So my point here though is that one, there were multiple witnesses to what took place in this marriage. Two, permission from the female's family was obtained. And three, a price was paid to the female and to her family. And a commitment or a covenant was then made between Isaac and Rebekah and they became a great couple for Yahweh, serving Yahweh together. Now we move further in Genesis from Genesis 24 and we see that things progress a bit Genesis 24 shows us the least of what is required for a marriage to take place but Genesis 29 we see the length that a man will go to marry a woman that he loves one of Isaac and Rebekah's sons Jacob remember Jacob and Esau were twins right and Jacob went to this man named Laban. And Laban was Rebekah, Jacob's mom's brother. Rebekah and Laban were brothers. And that makes Jacob and Rachel first cousins. And Yahweh didn't frown upon that marriage. They married one another. That's who the tribes of Israel came from. But Jacob worked for seven years for Laban so he could marry Rachel. And the Bible tells us that he loved her so much that those seven years only seemed like it was a few days. That's some serious love. Seven years for this lady. Now we know they had a big feast on the day that they were married and Laban tricked Jacob and gave, gave Leah to Jacob and he didn't realize it until he woke up the next morning and he says, It's Leah. Now, actually, the reason that he was deceived is because Leah and Rachel were twins. Uh, There are some extra-biblical texts that says that Leah was weak-eyed or lazy-eyed and Rachel was not. So, Jacob had married Leah and he said, You tricked me, Laban. And Laban says, Well, it's not our custom around here to give the younger daughter before we give the older one. And Leah was the older of the twins. And so he got Rachel anyhow. He had to fulfill Leah's week. And then after seven days he obtained Rachel. But he had to work another seven years. Laban made him work another seven years for Leah who he had given. So he worked 14 years for Rachel and Leah. But they had a big feast on the day that they were married, kind of like what we would now call a wedding reception. Again, both families involved knew and they approved of what was taking place. A price was paid by Jacob with the work and a commitment was made between Jacob and Rachel. Now, when a man married a woman, especially in the Hebrew culture, it was understood that he was required by the Torah to take care of that woman. He was required by law to take care of the woman. The man held the role of provider. He brought her under his covering to protect her. He was required to supply a place to live, food, clothing, and sexual rights to his wife. Exodus 21 verse 10 speaks to this. Now, in later times, and probably not much later, there was something that was called a ketubah that was drawn up when a male and a female got married the word ketubah comes from the word or the root word katav which means to write it's just a reference to a legal document the ketubah was a legal document and what it was listen carefully the ketubah was a unilateral agreement from the male to supply all of these things in exodus 21 verse 10 to his wife it also in the Ketubah it also included a money settlement agreement that was payable to the wife in the event of a divorce or the death of the husband this was in the Ketubah a unilateral promise from the man to the woman that I'm gonna supply these things for you now why unilateral for the man it is because Israel The Hebrews were a patriarchal society, male-led society. The males were the heads of the home. And the woman needed to be protected. And the ketubah was a written-down form of what was understood by all of the families involved in the marriage. Witnesses signed the ketubah. Not the male or the female getting married, but witnesses, eyewitnesses to what the man was committing to and to what was taking place in that ceremony. Now, a written down agreement by the male is not required by the Torah, but a covenant from the male to the female is required. And it's also not against the Torah to write down what you are covenanting to as a man who is marrying a woman. The main thing though is that a marriage should never be a private event. A man should not take a woman privately in marriage without anyone knowing it. As a matter of fact, I would encourage, especially the younger people that have not gotten married, if you have, if you are a young lady and you have a young man that wants to marry you in private or vice versa, run for your life. Because the odds are they don't want to commit and that's why they don't want to make it public. See, private commitments lead to sloppy commitments. But when you have eyewitnesses to this ceremony, it makes it more of a steady covenant or a steady commitment. Marriages were done publicly because marriages involved families. Agreements were made. Covenants were formed in the sight of witnesses so that everything done was known and firm. And people could see the male and the female look each other in the eye in love and in care. Now, this doesn't mean that you've got to have this, you know, big 500 person wedding, but it does mean that it needs to be a public thing. There needs to be witnesses there. There needs to be people there that see what is taking place in a marriage. All of that leads up to my next point. When it came to divorce, a legal document was commanded by the law of Deuteronomy 24. A man was not allowed to just send his wife away and say that constituted a divorce. That was allowed in some cultures. Some cultures do allow that. Ancient cultures sometimes did allow men to just send away their wives. But Yahweh protected the woman with this bill of divorcement. And the divorce certificate was written out by the man. And it explained the reasons that he was divorcing his wife. It is understood that this must be done in the sight of at least two witnesses based upon other texts in the Torah that say that we must establish important matters in this way. Now, it's interesting that I wasn't planning on this, but last night Rosalind and I were watching an episode of Little House on the Prairie and there was a couple that was going through a divorce in Walnut Grove in that community. Praise Yahweh, they didn't end up getting a divorce, so I was glad that they stayed together. But I remember that the judge, the circuit riding judge that was coming through town, he required that there be two witnesses to the divorce for it to be valid. And so they asked Charles and Carolyn Ingalls to, to do that. But I believe that that's based off of Hebrew law. That's uh, what that is. So once the husband wrote out the divorce certificate, the husband was required to put the certificate in her hand and then send her out of his house And the law tells us that she is free from that man then and has the ability to go and become another man's wife. Now, the certificate of divorce was kept by the woman in order to show that she had been lawfully divorced by her former husband and was no longer attached to that man in marriage. If anyone suspected that she was cheating on her husband, all she had to do was show her divorce certificate which had been written out by her former husband, with not just his handwriting, but also the signatures of two other witnesses, and the suspicion would be put to rest. She's not cheating. She's got this divorce certificate. Look at it. It's his handwriting. There's witnesses. We can verify this. So, the thought comes to mind. Let me see that remote control right there, son. The thought comes to my mind, and maybe it comes to your mind too, What if the husband was so hard-hearted that he refused to give his wife that he now hated, used to love, but Deuteronomy 24 verse 3 says he now hates, he dislikes her. He refused to give her a certificate of divorce. What if he was that hard-hearted? Well, I believe that that is exactly what happened in some cases. In a society that is patriarchal, in a society that is led by men oftentimes men would take advantage of their leadership role and use it against a woman. Now, good leaders do not do that. Whether they're men or pastors or governors, you name it. Good husbands are servant leaders who show love and respect for their wives. We learn this in Ephesians chapter 5 where the Bible says, Husbands, love your wives as the Messiah loved the assembly and gave himself for the assembly. Uh, Brother T.J. taught through Ephesians 5 and I would encourage you to go back and listen to that. Both the husbands and the wives. It's a, it's a great series of sermons there at the end of Ephesians 5. So, even a hard-hearted man is in some sense showing some kind of goodness when he frees the wife he no longer loves with a divorce certificate. Now, I'm not saying he's in the right. He should have been loving his wife. But he's showing some kind of goodness when he doesn't forbid that certificate from her and gives it to her so that she can live a free life now and be married again if she so chooses. But some men would abuse their power and they would skip to the third step in the divorce process and they would just send their wives out of the house without writing a certificate of divorce and putting it into her hand. Thereby, it placed the woman, in that case, on her own, yet still tied to a dead marriage. The woman being on her own, but yet legally, lawfully, still wedded to that first husband, she would be considered an adulteress if she got remarried. Now, such still happens today in Judaism. Next up on the screen, I have a video of a Jewish woman named Debbie who is asking her husband to give her a get. Get is not the English word that I'm talking about here. Get is an Aramaic word for the legal document of a divorce certificate. That's what the Jews call it today. And Debbie had been living as an aguna. She was called an aguna because the word aguna means a chained Wife, and she'd been living as an aguna or a chained wife for over 10 years when this video went up in 2017. her, Her former husband, that she's still attached to, even though it's a dead marriage, had not given her a certificate of divorce, a get in Aramaic. Now, you might say, well, could not Debbie obtain a legal government divorce document? Yes, she could. But in their Jewish faith no rabbi or community would recognize her next marriage without a Hebrew divorce certificate, without a get. Because that is what nullifies the previous marriage.
1: the get just give me the gate high. I'm not having anything else just give me the gate used to scream and once he kicked me in my stomach it wasn't a nice experience things so went worse. He was jealous of the baby. He starts saying that it's not his child. Uh, 12 years ago, I came to visit my parents here in Israel and I suffered a stroke. When I moved to rehab, my husband Chaim came. He told me that he's living. To the United States, and he's not going to see me again. Why Chaim can continue his life, and I can't? Because I am someone with disability. My disability is only physical. Emotional, not mental. Physical. I'm asking for, I get already 12 years. Without it, I cannot continue with my life. I cannot meet people. I cannot do nothing. I, I'm stuck in limbo. I,
0: So you can go on that website right there and you can kind of look at this organization that has been developed in order to help these Jewish women who have been sent away or put away by their husbands but their husbands refuse to give them a get or a legal divorce certificate which is against Deuteronomy 24 verses 1 through 2. Remember what Deuteronomy 24 1 through 2 says. There are three steps to a lawful divorce Not one step, not two steps, but three. The husband must, one, write out the certificate of divorce, two, put it in her hand, and three, send her out of his house. And then and only then can she become another man's wife. Now, do you see how a man could be so hard-hearted to skip to step three? It's awful, but... He could dislike the woman so much for whatever reason that He just sends her away without a certificate of divorce and therefore she is still lawfully and technically married to that man even though it's a dead marriage and He is no longer providing for her or protecting her as Exodus 21 verse 10 commands. Now let's take all of this information that we've covered up to this point and let's go back and read the Messiah's words in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 through 32 from the World English Bible. It was also said, Whoever shall put away his wife, that send away, let him give her a writing of divorce. But I tell you that whoever puts away his wife, except for the cause of sexual immorality, makes her an adulteress. And whoever marries her when she is put away, commits adultery. Now I've read this out of the World English Bible which is based on the 1901 American Standard Version because it is one of the few Bibles that gets this passage correct. That's exactly how it reads in the W.E.B. First off, I want you to remember Yeshua's pattern in Matthew 5. Now think about it. We're going back to the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said to our ancestors this, but I say unto you this. He starts off that way. You've heard that it was said And he follows up with, but I say unto you. The first part, you've heard that it was said, is the way that the religious leaders, specifically here, the scribes and the Pharisees of verse 20, it's the way that they had misused, abused, and wrongly interpreted the Torah. The law would be read and then explained, and Yeshua is contrasting the explanations of the religious leaders with his own explanations. He is teaching the people that he did not come to destroy the law, meaning he did not come to misinterpret, abuse, or misuse the law, but rather to fulfill the law, meaning properly interpret it and apply the law to the people's lives. That's the context of destroy and fulfill rabbinically, Hebraically, and in context in Matthew chapter 5. Now, in this case, what was said was based on Deuteronomy 24. Matthew 5, verse 31 basically quotes Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 2. Whoever shall put away his wife, that send her away, that's step 3. Step 3, whoever shall send her away, let him give her, that's step two, give her a writing of divorce. That's step one. That's basically a quotation of Deuteronomy 4, 1 through 2 in a nutshell. Now, is there anything wrong with that statement? No. There's nothing wrong with that statement. Not at all. No more than there being anything wrong with the statement in Matthew 5.21 where Yeshua says, You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, Do not murder. Nothing wrong with that statement. Or in 5.27, You have heard that it was said, Do not commit adultery. Nothing wrong with either of those statements. None of the statements themselves are incorrect. But in each case, what Yeshua does is He peels back the outer layer of the law and reveals deeper intentions in the law. And he does the same here. So what was happening was, many of the scribes and the Pharisees were quoting Deuteronomy 24. Whoever sends away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorce. They were quoting that, but they were not abiding by the law's full intent. Hard-hearted men, or we might say extra hard-hearted men, who fell out of love with their wives were sending them away without a certificate of divorce. And thereby they were tethering that female to them legally, just like Chaim did there with Debbie. That's why Yeshua says, but I tell you that whoever puts away his wife makes her an adulteress. The words put away there are identical to verse 31, shall put away his wife, where put away is separate from giving her a writing of divorce. Now, some translations read divorce both times in verse 32. The HCSB, the normal Bible that I read for my reading, says, But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in the case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, that translation makes it sound like Yeshua sided with the school of Shammai in thinking that The reason for divorce in Deuteronomy 24 was sexual immorality. Now I've covered why that's not the case in lesson 3 in this series. The problem here is that the HCSV is not technically accurate when it says divorce here in verse 32. I understand why they translate it this way, but it's not technically accurate. It should be translated as the World English Bible translates it. Put away or send away. I like send away better. The Greek word for put away here is apoluo in all three cases. And the Greek word for divorce is apostation. Apostation is a word that is not used many times in the New Testament. And each time it's referring to a certificate of divorce. Apoluo is a word that is used frequently in the Greek New Testament. And most of the time, it's used in a context that has nothing to do with divorce, about just putting something away. Like if you put away a can of vegetables in the root cellar. Uh, That would be, the Greek word apoluo would be used in that case. Showing that apoluo does not, it's not tied intrinsically to the divorce process. It just simply means to send away. So, the World English Bible is correct in its translation here. If a man just sends his wife away, he makes her an adulteress. Why? Because she's still legally married to her first husband. Why? Because the law of Deuteronomy 24 hasn't been properly carried out. She does not have the certificate of divorce in order to document that she is free to marry another man. And this is why Yeshua says at the end of Matthew 5 verse 32, and whoever marries her when she is put away commits adultery. Why does the man who marries this put away woman commit adultery? Because she's still technically another man's wife. She's not been properly divorced. So what was happening in Yeshua's day and also I believe at the time of the prophet Malachi, and we see even in modern day Judaism, is that the Hebrew men were quoting the law, but they weren't abiding by the full scope or intent of the law. Same exact way they quoted, do not murder, but they hated their brother in their heart without a cause. The same way they quoted, do not commit adultery, but they looked upon their neighbor's wife to lust after her. And Yeshua said you commit adultery in your heart. So just quoting the law and abiding by the bare minimum that the law requires is not righteousness. That might be pharisaical righteousness, but it's not the righteousness of Yahweh. The righteousness of Yahweh is to abide by the Spirit of the law and not just the letter. The letter is good, but we need both the letter and the Spirit in order for our righteousness to go beyond or surpass the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Yeshua was condemning men who merely sent their wives away without a certificate of divorce. And that is because Yeshua, just like Yahweh in Deuteronomy 24, was trying to protect the innocent woman in these cases. Now why though does it say here, except for the cause of sexual immorality? A lot of people get slipped up here. Most people think that this exception clause is put in place to give one exception that allows for divorce. In other words, many Christians believe that it's a sin to divorce except in a case where there's sexual immorality by one or both, one or the other party. I believe that that's a wrong understanding. I'm definitely against there being sexual immorality, you know, outside of marriage. It's a sin, right? But I think that that's a wrong understanding in this context because a proper lawful divorce is not in view in verse 32. Instead, it's just a putting away without a bill of divorcement. So why is there an exception clause here? This is how I think it's best to understand this. The exception clause is speaking of situations where people are married, put quotes around that, but they're married unlawfully. There are several unions which are forbidden in Leviticus chapter 18. A few of them are a man marrying his sister or daughter-in-law or a brother and sister marrying, which is what I said there in the first place. There were also cases where there were forbidden lineages in Scripture where certain Israelite men were forbidden to marry women from certain foreign lineages in Ezra and Nehemiah. And then you also have a case like in Leviticus 21 where there are commandments specifically to an Aaronic priest. And an Aaronic priest was not even allowed to marry a widow, a divorced woman, or a woman who had been defiled by prostitution. That did not mean that other men could not marry such a woman. But a priest, an Aaronic priest, was not allowed to. It appears there that an erotic priest had to marry a virgin woman from his own tribe so that any marriage other than that for the priest would not be a marriage at all. So all of this, the ancestral laws of Leviticus 18, certain interlineage relationships, Ezra and Nehemiah, certain priesthood laws, Leviticus 21, when these were violated, those constituted sexual immorality. and The Greek word is is porneia, often translated fornication, which... Porneia simply means anything outside of the realm that Yahweh allows for intimacy. That's what pornea means. So, in a case where someone found out they were unlawfully married to someone else, or if they knew that it was an unlawful marriage and they just didn't care, and then later on in life they repented of that sin, they were only required to send that partner away It didn't have to give them a bill of divorcement. Why? Because the marriage was never lawful to start with. So you can put away your partner, your spouse. This could even apply to a homosexual union. Let's say that two men are quote-unquote married. Married in the eyes of the United States government, but not in the eyes of Yahweh. Let's say one of them has a heart change He reads the scriptures. He realizes this is not a proper way of life. I need to get out of this relationship. There does not need to be a divorce certificate because it's not a lawful marriage. There simply needs to be a putting away or a separation. It would even apply in that case. So, all of this helps us see that Yeshua is not out of step with Yahweh's law in Deuteronomy 24. We should know this because He already told us Don't think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. I did not come to abuse the law. I came to use it properly. I did not come to misinterpret the law. I came to correctly interpret the law. So that you could know how to live. It's the context of Matthew 5. So while marriage, harmony, and togetherness was Yahweh's perfect will for male and female, there was a law of divorce that was put in place due to the hardness of men's hearts. And Yeshua taught that the law needed to be completely followed, or else the man was causing adultery to happen in case where he just put away his wife. And, this is a little technical, I'm not going to be long on this, one paragraph. It was not just the wife of the first husband that was guilty of adultery in these cases, it was also the first husband who refused to give his wife, a bill of divorcement. He too was considered guilty of adultery if he got remarried. Now when we read that, if we're Bible students, that should make our head spin at first because I covered in a previous sermon about men under Hebrew law, if all the parameters were followed, they were allowed to have more than one wife. Uh, We just talked about Jacob who married both Leah And Rachel. And so we think, how could this man be guilty of adultery if he sent his wife away and he gets married to another woman? What I think Yeshua is doing here is this Yeshua is showing that the man who treats his wife with such contempt will be considered an adulterer because he is the one that placed that woman in that situation. So therefore, Yahweh still holds that up over his head and says, Look, until you give her a certificate of divorce, any relationship that you get in will be considered sexual immorality. I think that's what Yeshua is talking about right there. And that harmonizes the Older Testament with the Newer Testament. So, there's a lot more that could be said. But I'm not going to say it. (laughs) I'm going to leave it right there. I do want to encourage you to get the material that's put out by my good friend John Carroll, Pastor John Carroll. He's a Pentecostal pastor and he and I agree on this subject. Praise the Father. And I think that his book, according to the interviews that I've seen, his book is making waves in Pentecost. (laughs) Why? Because this is not what was traditionally taught in that particular denomination. And so I told John that The most thing that I respect him for in his book and in his sermon series, which I have made a playlist of his sermons on my YouTube channel. They're that good. It's excellent. The thing I respect him for the most in this series is his loyalty and dedication to the Older Testament, to the Tanakh. Because that is something that you do not hear many pastors do. They kind of disregard the Older Testament in their exegesis because... They really don't think it matters. And we don't have to fit it in. It's not part of the puzzle pieces. We've just got to work from Matthew on to Revelation. And brothers and sisters, that is just not right. So we want to harmonize everything from Genesis all the way to Revelation. So you can read his book, Divorce and Remarriage, A Biblical Theology of Healing After Heartbreak. It's an excellent, excellent book. And Brother John has actually been through a divorce, not of his choosing. And then Yahweh has redeemed him after being single for a few years. And now he is remarried again to a lovely wife. And they're doing great. And so praise Yahweh Amen. for redemption. Praise Yahweh for redemption. People think, people, think Some people in church act like divorce is the unpardonable sin or something like that. But see, Yahweh has redeeming power. And Brother John brings out in his book, he says, if divorce does not allow for remarriage, then the fall has triumphed over redemption. Then sin has triumphed over the cross. <laughs> that gives me chill bumps when I'm reading it right now. Now, Only a good Pentecostal preacher can come up with something like that, right? <laughs> I can't come up with that kind of words. But he puts it out so good and he just does a great job at it. I love him. He's a great brother and a great friend. So I want to encourage you to do this. So, I hope that this series has blessed you And above all, number one, I hope for strong marriages in our congregation. Let us never give up on what Yahweh has blessed us with. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. Care for one another. Spend time with one another. Be that one flesh that Yahweh says you are. Uh, Praise Yahweh.
1: Amen.
0: I'm going to stop right
1: there.